Good morning, New Life Church. Wonderful singing this morning again. Thank you, music team, and for your ability to improvise there. We appreciate it. If you take your Bibles, please turn to Revelation chapter 2. We are, for those of you who um, have not been with us, we are in a series of messages titled Letters to the Seven Churches. And these are based on the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1, we see the resurrected and glorified Christ uh, revealing himself to his apostle John. And he told him to write letters to seven churches, seven literal churches in Asia. And today, we are again looking at the fourth of these letters, um, the letter to the church in Thyatira. And we learn about Christ's message here to a church that was sadly tolerant of of sin. And this happens to be the longest of all the letters in any of the letters sent to the churches. And there is much here for us to learn from. So if you would read with me from verse 18, we'll read down to verse 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead." And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together before we study God's word together. Father, this morning we come to you, Lord, with many different needs, many people struggling in different ways, Um, but we come, Lord, with ears to hear. We need to hear from you this morning. We need you to minister to our hearts, to our souls, and we pray that through the preaching of your word this morning you would do just that. Father, we often don't know what we need, but we're thankful, Lord, that you do. We're thankful that you are sovereign in every way, and you are gracious and kind, and you will not forsake us just as we, just as we sang about. So, Lord, we pray as we study this word, you would open our eyes to the truth that is revealed. And if there is sin, Lord, that we are tolerating if there are areas in our life that we have not surrendered to you, if there are areas, Lord, that we are worshiping as idols, we pray, Lord, that you would reveal that to us this morning, that we would not be guilty of putting anything before you today, Lord. So, Lord, this is a, a difficult passage to, to preach. It's a difficult passage to hear. But we know you want us to hear it. You tell us that, Lord. May we not just be casual hearers of your word this morning, but may we be doers. So help us to respond, Lord, in faith this morning. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In a poll conducted by editors of the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations, the following quote was judged the most popular quotation of modern times. Uh, this quote has been used by John F. Kennedy. It's been used by Martin Luther King. But its origins are attributed to a preacher by the name of Edmund Burke who lived during the 1920s. And here is the quote. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Sadly, this was the case with the church in Thyatira. The key word we find in this passage is in verse 20, which is translated as tolerate in the, in the ESV. And the Greek word is eaho, which means to permit or leave alone, suffer or tolerate. And there is a, a subtle difference, but very important difference between the Pergamum church and the, the Thyatira church. We're told in verse 14 and 15 in chapter 2 that there were some people in the church in Pergamum who were holding to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, which means they had embraced it, which means that they were propagating these false teachings, some of the people. But here, the church in Thyatira was tolerating the false teachings. So they had not embraced the heretical teachings like the Pergamum church had. Instead, they had, they had turned a, a blind eye to the problem, hoping it would go away. Under the banner of love, under the banner of tolerance, under the banner of unity, they were closing one eye to the terrible sin that had crept into the church. So this morning I have eight points. And my first point this morning is the address. We see that in verse 18. We already saw last week that Thyatira was, was not a very big church. It was not a very big city. And there wasn't much political or, or spiritual significance about the, the city. But they were known for one thing. They were a major trade and commerce center in Asia Minor, and they were full of trading guilds, which function much like our labor unions function today. And if you wanted to be part of a certain trade guild, there was a union that you had to join, and you had to follow their, their practices. Um, the difficulty for Christians in Thyatira came when they joined these unions, which they had to in order to work. It was necessary for them to well, it was forced upon them to practice their, their, their false practices. Um, there was pressure to participate in pagan festivals. There was pressure to um, be involved in worshipping of idols. And if they didn't, the possibility was there that they would lose their, their jobs. So apparently, we see from this passage, there were many in the church who were falling to this pressure and participating in these pagan festivals. And this is really what caused the Lord to write this letter to the church in Thyatira. We see in verse 18, the second part of verse 18, the description. The description of this, this church is given. Christ begins His description, firstly of Himself, by saying in verse 18, the words of the Son of God. And this is the only place in the book of Revelation that Christ is identified as the Son of God. Christ's preferred title for Himself in the Gospels is the Son of Man. And the, the, the title emphasizes His humiliation. It emphasizes His ability to identify with the needs of others. And that's what we see in, in the Gospels. People who are going through trials and difficulties, He can identify with them and associate with them. But however, the title, Son of God, is emphasized here in Revelation. And it emphasizes His deity. And He wanted the church in Thyatira to know that He was, he was not approaching them as a sympathetic high priest. But in fact, He was approaching them 
as their divine judge, the sovereign judge that they would give an account to one day. As the divine judge, you see there in verse 18, the Son of God is described as one who has eyes like a flame of fire. So Christ sees everything. He wants the church to understand that his eyes see these things and his eyes burn with, with fire. Nothing can be hidden from him. Furthermore, in verse 18, he identifies himself as the one with feet who are like burnished bronze. And Christ will trample out the corruption. Christ will trample out the, the sin that is, that is in his church one way or another. And he has promised us in Matthew 16 that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. And that means that oftentimes that there will be judgment. There will be judgment. There will be discipline that is painful and needy. And John MacArthur, he comments on this. He says, Not comfort, but judgment is in store for the church at Thyatira when Christ's divine power moves against this adulterous assembly. We see the commendation in verse 19, in the third point. As with all the churches in, this, in these chapters, the Lord begins with a commendation before He moves on to His criticism. I know thy works, He says to them. I know your love, I know your service, I know your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So Christ, the all-seeing judge, he, he noticed their works. He commended them for it. And he breaks down their works into four categories in verse 19. Look there, he says, love, service, faith, and patience. And first, Christ commended them for their love. So Christians here in the church in Thyatira loved God and loved one another. Very different to the, the church in in Ephesus, they had one commendation that the church in Ephesus did not have, and that was their love. The church in Ephesus was criticized for losing their, their first love. But the church in Thyatira was commended for it. That was a good thing. Second, we see that Christ commended them for their faith. Christians in the church in Thyatira, they, they trusted in God, and they demonstrated a, a faithful perseverance in in the midst of opposition from non-Christians. Thirdly, Christ commended them for their service. Christians in the church in Thyatira, they were active in ministry, they were involved, they were involved in their community with one another. Um, they weren't just keeping the seats warm, they were actively involved in serving. That was a good thing. That was a good thing. And fourthly, we see Christ commended them for their patient endurance. So Christians here in this church persevered despite the, the struggles, despite the pressures that they were facing, despite the opposition that they were facing from, from a very pagan culture around them. But that was not all. Christ continued to commend this church by saying that their latter works exceeded the first. Christ told the church in Ephesus that they were to do the, the first works but the church in Ephesus started well, but then they declined. They declined. But this church here in Thyatira, it seems they were growing. They were maturing. More and more people were being added to the church. They were growing in selfless ministry. They were growing in obedient faith. They were growing in patient endurance. So unlike many Christians who are very zealous when they first get saved, they're very zealous for the Lord, but after a few years, that zeal becomes sadly cold. But this church was probably 15 years old, but then constantly grown in their, their works for the Lord. Good things. But we see in verse 20 and 21 the complaint. Though they were eager, though they were zealous, though they were active, they were evangelistic, they were faithful, they were persevering, there were some problems, serious problems in the church in Thyatira. And the Lord continues in verse 20, I have this against you, 
that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. As in most of the letters, the commendation is the the anesthetic before the, the surgery, as we've seen. And the Lord will not overlook the sin. The Lord will not tolerate sin. The Lord won't keep one eye closed, hoping that it will go away, because He understands the damage that sin causes. And the Lord is not prepared to overlook the sin, simply because they are doing good things. He has a standard for the church. It's not our standard. By our standard, that church is great. By our standard, we probably want to be members of that church. But this is God's standard. This is God's standard for the church. And he will not sway from that standard. And as, a, as a result, he identifies the sin that is in this church. And he commands the believers to, to repent that are in this church. Remember, this is written to a church who are professing believers. And apparently, the large number in the church in Thyatira were, were led astray by a corrupt teaching. I suppose that it is possible that there was literally a woman named Jezebel in the church, but, but I don't think so. I doubt it. More likely, Jezebel is a reference to the Old Testament character that we know about who introduced idolatry and fornication into Israel during the days of Elijah. And the Lord is identifying the teacher here in Thyatira with the Jezebel spirit against which Elijah had to battle against. This Jezebel-like woman is said to have claimed the gift of prophecy for herself. She's a self-appointed prophetess. The fact that this prophecy mentioned in this verse was not from God is evident of that. And it clearly contradicted God's word. But now, how did she teach this church to commit adultery and fornication? That's important for us to see. Probably within the context of the trade guilds. And that is probably... Um, She probably said something like this. I have a word from the Lord. You need to listen to me. God has spoken to me. She's claiming to be a prophetess. And he says that it is all right for you to be part of these trade guilds. And it's all right for for you Christians to participate in all the requirements of these different trade unions. It's okay for you to commit fornication. It's okay for you to, to practice idolatry. Because... God expects you to provide for your family. He expects you to do that. So it's okay. God will understand. God's not unreasonable. He understands your difficulty. And He condones you to to do that sin. It's okay for now. God will overlook it. It's important that we understand that those embracing these doctrines were believers. And Jesus claims them as my servants. He says so. And later, the Lord describes this doctrine in verse 24 as the deep things of Satan. This is what she was teaching. This is what people were believing. And the phrase deep things is a very rare word in the New Testament. And it usually refers to the deep things of God. The deep things that the Lord reveals to His people. But here it's referring to Satan. And what Jezebel was teaching was that just as knowing God is necessary to obey God, it's necessary for you to know Satan in order to to avoid Satan. So we must accommodate satanic practices in order to combat Satan. We must accommodate worldliness in order to combat the world. How will I reach drunkards if I don't join them in drinking? How will I reach prostitutes if I don't go and and sleep with them? That's kind of the philosophy that was being propagated by this prophetess Jezebel. And the problem was simply this. They had been deceived into believing that they were not sitting. They had believed a lie. They had convinced themselves, or they had been convinced by a false teacher that they were not sinning. And they wouldn't see their sin as God 
saw their sin. They had moved the standard away that God had given. And as a result, the church had not disciplined the sin. The church had allowed the sin to be growing in the church. But now it was time to repent. And Christ goes on to say in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I want us to to park here on this point for a little bit by way of application. I believe that this is the main point of the whole passage that, that we need to listen to. You know, the Westminster Confession of Faith says the following in in chapter 25. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to His will. Churches that do not deal with sin in, it, in their midst do not practice church discipline. And those churches eventually degenerate, just as we see in the Scriptures. And they become not churches of Christ, but they become synagogues of Satan because they have not dealt with sin. It always starts somewhere, folks. And the Lord Jesus Christ called His church to deal with sin. Sin that is in the midst of us. By practicing church discipline, it's, it's mentioned. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, turn here with me, Matthew 18. He commanded his church to do so. And he says in Matthew 18 verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There are four steps there involved in church discipline. Private rebuke. Then you take a friend or witnesses with you. Public rebuke. Then you go to the next stage where the church is asked to go and find out how they can help the person who is is sinning. The church is, 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 is let loose to go and minister to this person. And if that doesn't work, the fourth and the last step is they are to be put out of the church so that they will be no longer under the protection and under the blessing of God and the saints. They are put out to Satan and his forces where, where they are judged and all God's blessings taken away where they are exposed to all the attacks of Satan so that they would repent, so that they would come back. You know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about church discipline because there's a lot of misunderstanding about judgment, biblical judgment. So many people think Of Matthew chapter 7, even the unbelievers know Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. Judge not, lest he be judged. Everybody knows that verse. It's kind of a a blanket statement, which means we we must never, under any circumstances, judge. But how can this be? Does the Bible contradict itself? If we are called to discipline sin, how do we follow this biblical process of church discipline without judging our brothers and sisters. Is the Bible wrong somewhere? No, of course it's not wrong. It's our understanding of the Scriptures. And the answers are are here in the Scriptures. I mean, look at Matthew chapter 7. Firstly, the passage does not say we must not judge. It says we must not judge in a hypocritical way. We must not judge in a hypocritical way. Look at Matthew 7. In verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, 
when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The Scriptures are not telling us not to judge. The Lord here is telling us to judge properly, in a proper way that is not hypocritical. Take the log out of your own eye first, so that you can clearly see the speck in your brother's eye and take it out of his eye. We can't take that speck out of our brother's eye when we have this tree that is keeping us from seeing properly. This kind of judgment is an act of discernment. And this is not what Jesus is, is forbidding. In fact, throughout the Bible, we are commanded to discern. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus talks about having the discernment to see difference between good people and evil people. And he compares them to trees, good trees. And he says, produce good fruit. And bad trees produce bad fruit. The call to discern good from evil is to judge. It is to discern correctly in a proper way. Not in a self-righteous way. But of course, the second way that people judge, and the second way the word is used in the scriptures, is in a condemning way. And that's what we are forbidden to do. To judge in a condemning way. And Jesus forbids this type of judgment. And he makes this clear in Luke 6 verse 37. He says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Jesus is saying the same thing in two ways. There was a common way that the, that the rabbis would teach during that time. He's not teaching anything different. So do, do you see the problem here? The church in Thyatira was closing one eye, was tolerating the sin that was, that was destroying the church. It was destroying the church. They were not being discerning. In fact, we know that they had a lot of love to give. But it seems at the expense of standing for what was right. They did not want to offend anybody's feelings. So they thought the best thing to do was just keep quiet and not say anything. As we see from the scriptures, that is the most unloving thing that anybody can do. It is the most unloving thing. Hebrews 12 verse 6 tells us that God disciplines those He loves. And thank God for that. He disciplines those He loves and He punishes everyone who, accepts, who He accepts as a son. And the King James Version uses stronger language. Those who are not disciplined by God are bastards. That's the King James language. They are without a father. Those that God doesn't judge are not His children. The church in Thyatira was saying, we know better than you know, God. We know how to love, and we are not prepared to love like you love. Any church that really doesn't discipline sin is, is acting the same way as the church in Thyatira did. They're saying, we, we know better. We, we will tolerate sin because we love we love our members. But true love disciplines sin. It does not tolerate sin. Think for a moment of your own children. If you saw one of them putting their hand into a fire, what would you say? Would you, would you permit it? Would you say, oh, just let it be. I don't want to cause a scene. I don't want to let the neighbors hear me shout. I don't want to disturb anybody. Just, just let them be. I don't think so. If you're a good parent, you know that if you allowed them to put their hand in the fire, damage would be caused. Hurt would be caused. Pain would be caused. Keeping quiet is the most unloving thing that you can do. You know, it might be tolerant for a mother to let her child play in a busy street or to run around with a pair of scissors but it's not loving. It's not loving because we know the end results. We know the pain that it will cause. We know the hurt that it will cause. 
by tolerating sin in the church, by tolerating sin in our own lives, we are saying that, that we don't love and we don't care much for ourselves, for our brothers and our sisters in Christ, and that we don't care much for the purity of God's church, the purity of Christ's church. This is His church after all, is it not? He's the head of this church. And the church exists for Christ. The church exists to glorify Christ. The church doesn't exist for us. As much as we enjoy coming to church, it doesn't exist for, for community, really. It exists for Christ. It exists for His glory. We cannot be doing, we cannot be glorifying Christ successfully if we are tolerating sin amongst us. This last week we heard the sad news of the death of Billy Graham. And he wrote a, he preached a message called the sin of tolerance. Maybe I'll send it out this week to the home groups so you can study that a little better. But listen to what he says about the sin of tolerance. He said, a counterfeit Christian single-handedly can do more to retard the progress of the church than a dozen saints can do to forward it. That is why Jesus was so intolerant of hypocrisy. A great church leader said that the greatest need in the church today is for church members to live what they profess. Amen to that. Amen to that. The church in Thyatira was guilty of being a hypocritical church. They were tolerating sin amongst themselves. They were making excuses for the sins that they were committing. They weren't prepared to deal with them as they should have. The church exists to glorify Christ. We are here with a purpose. And the church that glorifies Christ makes it their passion to know Christ. A church that glorifies Christ will do everything they can to live for Christ. Not just on a Friday, but every single day of the week. Not just avoiding sin, but living for Christ. The church that glorifies Christ does everything they can to share the wonderful news of the redemption of sinners. That's why we exist to glorify Christ and enjoy Him together. But the fifth point we need to notice the warning. Verse 22 and 23, Christ says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Those are strong words. Those are powerful words. The Lord is not mincing His words here. God is love, yes. We cannot deny that. But God is holy as well. He is righteous all together. And He will judge sin. It's as if the Lord is saying... So you want to get into bed with Jezebel? Fine. Fine. Go ahead. But it will be a bed of destruction. It will be a bed of death. And this bed is further defined as, as great tribulation. And the term great tribulation is, is used here in Revelation chapter 2 and in Revelation chapter 7 and in Matthew chapter 24. The great tribulation of Matthew 24 clearly describes the, the judgment upon unbelieving Judaism during 70 AD. And we all know what happened during 70 AD, don't we? The temple was destroyed. And God's judgment came upon Israel for their rejection of Christ as the Messiah. And what the Lord is saying is that should they refuse to repent, they would go through the same judgment just like the unbelieving Jews. And the intimation is that if they don't repent, they are acting as unbelievers. 
And that's why Christ will judge them in such severe ways. He will give them what they deserve. But this judgment will come upon those who refuse to repent. Let me make that clear. Not those who do repent. The Lord will sift His church. He will separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff. It says there, He would also kill her children with death. And the children are not the children of of Christ. They are the children of Jezebel. They are Jezebel's spiritual offspring. And those who she has misled and those who are enjoying their sin, those who are entertaining that sin and are living for that sin, who are slaves to that sin. And the point is being reemphasized that the Lord will judge not only her, but all those who have embraced her lies. And rejected the truth of God's word. We see the, observe the sixth, command, the, the, the sixth point, the command in verse 24. Christ says in verse 24, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. So Christ defined true Christians in Thyatira as those who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Jezebel and those who followed her false teachings claimed to know the depths of the satanic teaching. But the teaching was exposed as just false, heretical teaching. That's all it was. So Christ did not lay on the true Christians in Thyatira any other burden. And Christ is true and righteous, and He promises nothing can take us away from the love of God for those who are true Christians, those who are following Christ and are no longer slaves to their sin. But God is true and righteous and will judge those who are enjoying their sin, those who don't enjoy Christ, who have no passion to glorify Him and to enjoy Him but who live lives that are selfish and lives that are sinful. John MacArthur said, Bearing the burden of seeing blatant false teaching and immoral living rampant in their church and having to resist the incessant solicitation and ridicule from the Jezebel party was burden enough for them to bear. They suffered The true believers in this church struggled. They must have been heartbroken to see what was going on in their church. And they carried this burden. They carried this burden for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And the Lord says, I will not hold you responsible for this. I will not lay on you any other burden. They had a terrible burden to bear already. Seeing their brothers and sisters who profess to be Christians involved in terrible sin and we can identify that we can identify with that can we not we have family members some of you have children that are involved in wicked sins that break your heart and there's a burden we have to bear and we pray for them and we trust that the lord would open their eyes to see the sin for what it is but it's a burden nonetheless christ went on to say in verse 25 Hold fast what you have until I come. He's talking to the believers here, the true Christians. And he says, stay on the course that you are on. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to His Word. And continue in your love. Continue in your faith. Continue in your servants. Continue in your patient endurance for the sake of Christ in a difficult situation. In a difficult situation. And hear that today. Mother, father, we have children that are not following the Lord. Persevere. Persevere in your faith. Persevere in your love. Persevere in your service. That unbelievers, your friends, your family members may see your good works and glorify Christ. We pray for that. But seventh, look at the promise. 
in verse 26. Here's the promise. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This promise came from Psalm chapter 2. We read that last week with Pastor Kevin. Where Christ's future sovereignty over the nations is predicted. Ask of me, God says to Christ. He says to His Son. And I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Christ will share his sovereign reign over the nations with the one who conquers. With the true believers, we will share in his reign, folks. Those who follow him faithfully, those who persevere faithfully. This promise is given again in verse 28 where where Christ said, And I will give him the morning star. In Revelation 22, 16, Christ describes himself as the morning star. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So there's a promise here Christ is giving. And he's promising to give himself to the one who conquers, to the true Christian. We have this reward for those who conquer, those who persevere. But notice the appeal. Notice the appeal in verse 29. Christ says in verse 29, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Christ appealed to Christians to pay attention to what he is saying, basically. Pay attention. There are several areas that we can pay attention to this morning. Several areas that we can apply this message to the Thyatira church, to ourselves. And firstly, let us grow in works. Let us grow in love. Let us grow in faith. Let us grow in our service. And let us grow in patient endurance. We live in a world that's not very dissimilar or different to the world that the Thyatirans lived. And Christ commended them for their works in a pagan culture. It would be wonderful if Christ said to us, your latter works exceed the first. But secondly, let us not tolerate sin. Sin is a corruption that works its wickedness into the fabric of our lives and our church. There's a story of how Eskimos capture wolves. They take a knife and they cover it with blood and they leave it in the snow so that it gets covered with with ice. And they leave it there for a few days until a wolf will scent and smell that blood. And the wolf will approach that, that knife, that blade is sticking out of the ground covered by the blood and the ice and will start licking that knife, enjoying the taste of the blood and will lick more and more until the ice is melted, until it gets to the blood. And the more blood it tastes, the more excited it gets, and the more hungry it gets. But in the process, he cuts its tongue. He slashes his tongue, he rips his own tongue on the, the knife. But he can't distinguish anymore between the other blood and his own blood, and becomes ravenous and ravenous until he rips himself apart <coughs> and dies, bleeds to death. And that's a gruesome picture. But that's a perfect picture of what sin does. That is a perfect picture of how sin will weave itself into the fabric of our homes, into the fabric of our churches, and it will destroy us. Sin is not our friend. And we must do everything necessary to make sure we do not tolerate sin. Do not tolerate sin in ourselves. And we need to eradicate it at all costs. God will judge continued unrepentant sin in our lives and in our church because He loves us. He doesn't want us to be playing in the, in the busy streets. He loves His children. 
let us commit to being a church that disciplines sin. It lovingly comes alongside a brother or sister in Christ and helps him see sin as God sees it. But that means we need to take out the log that is in our eye. Otherwise, we're just being hypocritical. Otherwise, we're just being self-righteous. And that's not what God wants. Finally, let's make sure that we are, in fact, members of Christ's church. If you are not sure of your standing before God, put your trust in Jesus Christ. Believe He is the Son of God. Believe that He is the divine judge. You need to believe that He will punish sin and He will punish those who reject His offer on the cross of forgiveness. If you do not repent of your sin, Christ will judge it. You know, we can pay for our sin two ways. Did you know that? One is accepting the payment that's already been made by Christ on the cross. Or we can pay for our sin ourselves. But it will be in the lake of fire. And that's the choices we have. Accept the payment Christ has made for you. Or make your own payment. But either way, our sin needs to be judged. And our sin has been judged by God. Our sin has been paid by Christ when He shed His blood on the cross for us. We no longer are condemned because of Christ's righteous sacrifice. For all those who trust in Jesus, we are forgiven. But let's make sure of that. Let's make sure that our trust is in Christ and not in our works, not in our attempts to please God in a self-righteous way. Christ expects us to love Him. Christ expects us to love Him the way the Bible describes love. I thought it fitting to finish with a quote by Billy Graham, give him the last word this morning. Let me read from his sermon of intolerance. He says, Christ was so intolerant of our sin that he left his lofty throne in the heavenlies. He took on himself the form of man and he suffered at the hands of evil men and died on a cruel cross of shame. To purchase our redemption. So serious was our plight that he could not look upon it lightly. He could not be broad minded about a world held captive by its lust. Thank God for Jesus Christ, folks. Thank God he didn't give us what we deserved. Thank God that he did not just look upon us lightly. Thank God that he loved us enough to send Jesus Christ. Let's live for him like he died for us, unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your love, your pure and perfect love, your agape love. We know it's not a selfish love. We know it is perfect in every way. We know it's not selfish because you gave your son you gave your son to die a cruel death, to suffer at the hands of those that he came to die for. And each and every single one of us are guilty this morning of putting the nails in Jesus' hands. But yet, he submitted to your will, even though he knew of the pain, even though he knew of the shame, he submitted to your will and finished the work of redemption. Because of Him, because of His sacrifice, because of His perfect work on the cross, we are no longer condemned. And we can live eternally with You. We thank You for that salvation. I pray for those this morning who are not sure if they were to die today, whether they would stand before the loving Father or the divine Judge. pray this morning that you would help them know for sure and make right with you before it's too late 
that you grant them a heart of repentance and grant them faith to believe in the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Lord, for those of us who are saved and those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, may we live lives, Lord, that are not characteristic of sin. That we would have a testimony of love, service, faith, and perseverance. That we would have testimonies, Lord, of holiness. That we would be striving, pursuing holiness in our, in our own personal lives, in our homes. That we would have testimonies of joy to a world around us that needs that joy. To a world around us that needs that hope. Lord, that we would be characteristic of a church that is willing to share that hope, to share that love, to share that truth with a world that is dying in their sins. Pray, Lord, that we would be the church that you want us to be, a church that is faithful, a church that is true, a church that hates sin the way you hate sin, a church that realizes sin is our enemy. And the only way we can be redeemed of that sin, delivered from that sin, is by trusting in the work of Christ. May that be our prayer every day. May we be putting on Christ every day. May we be living the gospel every day. May we be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. That slave would no longer, that sin would no longer rule us. That we'd be victors for the sake of your great name. So we pray this week, Lord, that you give us opportunities. Give us opportunities to to share the love of Christ with those around us. And Lord, if you were to return this week, may we hear you say,